0: Beware of false prophets. That is a stern and clear command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beware of false prophets. False prophets grow among God's garden like weeds. I started doing my garden, uh, getting it ready for this season's grove, growing, and there's a ton of weeds in there, and I'm like, "I didn't plant weed seeds. How did they grow in there? They just grow. And in like manner, false prophets are like weeds that consistently grow in the garden of our Lord, and you may try to pluck them out, but they keep coming. And so therefore, we must beware of false prophets, but what is our only recourse? It's God's word. God's Word is what we stand upon. And if you've been coming to Winona Gospel Church for any amount of time, you will know this, that at Winona Gospel Church, we highly treasure God's Word to us. We highly treasure the Scripture. We we treasure the Bible recognizing that it is inspired. And by inspired, we mean that it is the breathed-out Word of God, according to Paul in 2 Timothy. And that those who penned the books... And the letters of scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, both black letters and red letters, did so as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter in, his, in 1 Peter 1. But not only do we believe and teach that Scripture is inspired, but we also believe and we also teach that Scripture is inerrant. And by inerrant, we mean that in the original Greek, in the original Hebrew, there is not one error, not a single error. There is not a period in the wrong place, a dash in the wrong place, a comma in the wrong place. It is completely, fully, totally God's Word. We also believe that Scripture is holy meaning that the Bible is set apart from all other books, all other writings, all other teachings, as it points us to and reveals to us the Most Holy One. But not only that, it also reveals to us the gospel by which we can be saved. We also teach that Scripture is authoritative, meaning that when Scripture clearly teaches about any subject... When Scripture addresses any topic, whether directly or indirectly, it speaks to those subjects completely authoritatively. It speaks to them perfectly. And it is, Scripture is, both our final and our highest authority. Scripture is the rule to which we conform our lives because everything that's contained in it is what God has said to us. And the reason we have to stress this is because the world that we live in clamors to deconstruct the teachings of God's Word. The world that we live in clamors to redefine the teachings that we find in God's Words in order to suit its current cultural passions. You ever notice that they're always, whatever the sin is, If it's something that you enjoy doing, you can always find a way to take God's word and turn it so that it permits you to remain in whatever sin that you enjoy. I see this a lot with people who are angry and bitter with other people. They find ways to make God's word allow them to sit in their unforgiveness and their bitterness when God's word is so clear on this subject. If you don't forgive, you are not forgiven. God's authoritative word remains fixed and firm because the God who gave that word, he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So his word does not change because he does not change. And so often you'll hear it. I've heard it. Some people will say to me, well, what does a 2,000-year-old book have to say to my life today as a modern person? It has everything to say to your life today as a modern person because the God who wrote it, the God who inspired it, knows us better than we know ourselves. And the heart's condition of humanity now is no different than it was 2,000 years ago. And the eternal, unchanging God who inspired his authoritative word has not changed. He does not change with the seasons, with the cultural shifts. And we also believe that Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient, meaning that everything we need to know for a life of faith and service to the Lord is revealed to us in Scripture. There is no need for any extra or added revelation to us apart from the Bible. Why? Because any such revelation would either be redundant because God's word has already clearly revealed everything God needs us to know or wants us to know, or it is simply plain error. Scripture reveals to us everything we must know, everything we must believe if we are going to identify the narrow gate, walk through that narrow gate, and then live life on the narrow road that leads to eternal, everlasting, exceedingly joyful life with the Lord. But sadly... Sadly for us, sadly for people of the world, there are a number of people who warp and distort Scripture to their own wicked and evil ends, whatever these ends might be. There are some who are desperate for power. They're desperate for validation. They're desperate for authority or some level of popularity. And so they take to themselves the role of apostle or the role of prophet or the role of preacher or pastor or ministry leader, and they peddle false doctrines and tickle the ears of their listeners. And in so doing, they gain large followings of people who simply adore them And they enjoy that adoration, all the while leading those people like the Pied Piper down the wide road that leads to their eternal destruction. Just as an aside, if you're listening to anyone who calls themselves apostle so-and-so or prophet so-and-so, stop it, okay? Those guys are all false. But it's not just those who want popularity and acclaim. There are some who love money. And they love what what money can buy. They love the luxuries that they can enjoy as they accumulate more money. And so they've recognized that just by simply... By the simple mangling of a few scripture texts. By lifting certain portions of God's word out of their context. By ignoring the overall teaching of a passage, a book, a letter, or the scriptures as a whole... They can call on their listeners to practice faith. And how do you practice faith? According to these money-loving luxury hounds? By calling on them to send large gifts and donations to their ministry. And they promise that if you only have the faith to do so, if you just have enough faith to sow a seed, sow a financial seed, The Lord will reward you with oodles and oodles of money and wealth and bills paid in return. So many of these types, these hucksters, these false teachers, these false prophets, they litter the visible Christian landscape, leading both their own followers down the broad road that leads to their eternal destruction, but also solidifying in Uh, onlookers minds the idea that every church every pastor every ministry every leader every shepherd is simply in this for the money have you ever heard that all you guys want is money and it's a fair assumption to make if all you're hearing is from these greedy false prophets And so they respond by either avoiding church, refusing to hear or to heed or to believe the gospel, and simply convincing themselves, they're just doing this to get my money. What a grievous and miserable state of affairs this is. False teaching and false teachers are a very serious problem. Because of all the false, because all of the false and heretical teachings that are out there, Teachings that do not take the Word of God seriously. Lead people to adhere to those teachings and to follow those teachings and to believe the lies of the false teachers and those false teachers' vandalism of Scripture. And all of these teachings are very destructive to one's Christian walk. Remember, you're either walking on the narrow path or the wide path, and to listen to false teachers puts you on the wide path or endangers you to the wider... Points you in that direction. The teaching of false teachers is a hindrance to many people's identification and entrance through the narrow gate. And so Jesus, as he's teaching on this day, on this in this sermon, begins this uh, this uh, section of the sermon by warning those listening: Beware of false prophets. You see that right? Seven verse fifteen. Beware of false prophets. False prophets are one of the great dangers to each and every one of us who would want to walk the narrow road. Each and every one of us who want to flourish as we walk this narrow road, who want to obey the Word of God as we walk on the narrow road is threatened by, at all times, the multiplication of false prophets who are consistently watching you and then trying to fan you not onto the narrow road, but back onto the wide road, the broad road, the road that leads to your destruction. False prophets are those who dissuade people from increasing lives of holiness and increasing obedience to the Lord. False prophets tend, in general, to be very broad road in their teaching and in their speaking. Nothing offends the flesh in their messages. You know the flesh? The flesh is that natural part of us that so deeply loves ourselves, That part of us that idolizes ourselves, that focuses all of its energy on trying to make ourselves happy, ourselves comfortable, even though Christ made it abundantly clear that if you are going to repent of your sin and turn to Him in faith, you must count the cost. Why would Jesus tell us to count the cost of repentance and faith in Him? Because when we turn to Him in faith, a death occurs. We die to ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Him. And the Spirit in us, the direction that the Holy Spirit now moves us is toward the ever-increasing imitation of Jesus, the ever-increasing growth up into the likeness of Jesus, ever-increasing obedience to Jesus, and that runs contrary to our flesh. And so false prophets know this, and they come to you with easy, attractive, pleasant, nice words. They come to you comforting you with notions like, hey, listen, you just need to love yourself. Indulge yourself. Be who you are. Be your authentic self. I was driving down um, Highway 8, and there's a church just up on Highway 8, and the sign, and I was so proud of my lovely wife because she saw it, and she's just like, when I see that, it makes my skin crawl, and I'm like, yes! Because it said right on the sign, how can you love Jesus if you don't love yourself? And I'm like, that text was never meant to do that. right? But this is where our culture has led us, by subtly warping a text and taking a text that is meant to inflame love for Christ and turn it into a reason to love yourself. Attractive, easy, pleasant, nice words. In fact, false prophets of today do exactly what the false prophets of Jeremiah's day do. In Jeremiah's day, the Lord had pronounced judgment and disaster for Jerusalem, stemming from their rebellion, and he sent Jeremiah to tell the peoples of this impending doom. And the Lord spoke through Jeremiah, saying about the false prophets who were getting in the way of that message, this in Jeremiah chapter 6. These are the Lord's words through the prophet. From the greatest to the least of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the least To priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown. Jerusalem was facing a disaster the destruction of the temple. And Jeremiah was telling the people of the disaster that the Lord was about to bring upon the the nation. And false prophets rose up. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. The Lord would never do anything like that. And it's very similar. Even in the midst of the impending disaster that awaited Jerusalem, the false prophets turned the people's hearts away so that they wouldn't listen. And there is an impending disaster that awaits our, every single soul who rejects entrance into the narrow gate today. And false prophets of our own day, greedy for unjust gain, dealing falsely with the people, heal the wounds of the people lightly, according to Jeremiah, dressing the deepest needs of a lost soul with bandages that only serve to increase the affection, infection. Infection. And then they have the gall to cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, they labor to please everyone, even if it means theological and doctrinal compromise on absolute essentials. They are willing to wholesale abandon the truth of God's word in order to, to grow their flocks. They don't speak to the offense of the cross. They avoid being the stench of death to those who are perishing. Actually, these false prophets even move in the direction of despising and insulting the true prophets of God, hurling insults like, you're just too dogmatic, you're too strict, you're too narrow-minded, you're too focused on the truth. You're not nice. That's the biggest insult in Canadian culture, right? You're just not nice. Prophets were rarely nice because prophets were called upon to address deep, difficult, devastating issues. But the false prophets rarely address the necessities of holiness in one's life, rarely address the need to persistently uh, pour forth your efforts to obey all that God has commanded in Christ. They rarely speak about righteousness, about the justice of God, about the wrath of God. And this is exactly what the world we live in requires most. The pure, simple gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, to get to the good news, you have to speak about the bad news. We are wretched sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But false prophets tend to focus on love And by that, I don't mean the love of God in sending his son to die for us because we were desperately wicked sinners. Instead, they mean the cultural definition of love, right? That sentimental, squishy emotion that's undefined at the expense of holiness type of love. And they avoid and conceal and go so far as to call for the deconstruction or the revisiting of the clear moral teachings of God. As culture shifts, so do these false prophets. See, false prophets will check the way the wind is blowing. They'll determine which way the cultural winds are going, and they will follow culture and seek to gain the approval of the world rather than faithfully proclaim God's word that does not change. The lips of false teachers drip with sweet honey with messages that soothe and massage your desire to live however you want while at the same time resting secure in some level of spirituality or some level of acceptability before God because God would never turn away a good person, would he? They deny that the gate and the road that lead to life is narrow and in so doing they misrepresent our Savior and his gospel. They are dangerous and for this reason Jesus said, Beware. Beware of false prophets. Now, hopefully during times like these, times like this COVID and these lockdowns, these are the primary preoccupations of our minds right now. It seems like every conversation I'm having is about a lockdown or a COVID or a a vaccination, right? It's probably the same with you. But hopefully during this time, as we're looking at this whole scenario, we are noting how vapid and how devoid of substance false prophets actually are. Because I had to laugh. I kind of keep up with the news about what's going on in these ministries and these false people just so I can make sure that none of it gets into here, right? And so I had to laugh because the other day I was reading about these numerous healing ministries and health and wealth ministries whose prophets made the call to suspend their healing ministries because of COVID. What? These healing prophets apparently don't feel safe going out and healing people during a pandemic. I mean, if that right there does not reveal the level of lunacy and falsehood of such groups, I don't know what will. I don't know how such groups can convince people when they start up again. Let me come and heal you. But wait, where were you for the two years we were dealing with COVID? Oh, oh, we were locked down with you. With our masks. Are you like, wait, that does not seem congruent with what you claim to be? My hope is that such ministries, such peoples do not survive the pandemic. Not, I don't want them to die, I mean their ministries don't survive. So beware of false prophets. Beware here means be on guard, be alert be cautious to, be wary of false prophets. It means to concern yourself with ensuring that your mind and your heart are not taken in by the dangers they pose. The shelf space in your brain ought to cost a lot. And you should not allow cheap substitutes to take up the shelf space of your brain. And who are we to beware of, says Jesus? False prophets, right? Beware of false prophets. Those who, in this case, come to you deliberately deceiving, right? See, the text tells us that they come in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. They deceive by claiming to speak for and claiming to represent the Lord, but in fact, they lie. And Jesus told us to beware of these types because we are very prone to believing lies. If we hear something enough times, we will believe it. When you grew up, how many years did you think gum would stay in your stomach if you ate it? Does anyone remember? How many? Seven! I see all, everybody's heads, you know, yeah, 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 I believe that. And do you know, we've been told that if you shave, your hair comes back thicker. That's not true. But we believe it because we've been told it over and over and over. It's called echologic. And it's a very, um, it works very well when false prophets come and do it in the church. You say the same thing enough times, people will start to buy into it, even though there is no foundation for it. We are prone to believing lies. And so when these false prophets come along and they flatter us and they tell us, listen, you can walk on the broad road and you can have your sin, although they don't use the word sin. You can have both. You can have this and you can have the Lord. How much of us wants to believe that? So we must remain vigilant. We must repent and turn to christ always every single day in our battle against sin we must be constantly fighting against it laboring to put our sin to death in obedience to our lord's call to holiness and again the ministry of the prophet jeremiah is informative here because god sent jeremiah to the people with the message of repentance and you see i want you to contrast right now the message and the lifestyles of the false prophets with those prophets you see in Scripture. You see, in Scripture, the prophets were always tasked with an unenviable labor. They were called to the unenviable position of constantly revealing to people the threat of the Lord's violence and destruction that will come upon them if they don't repent destruction that comes upon the unrepentant the prophet is tasked with the unenviable position of telling people that whose greatest idol is themselves that they are grievous wicked sinners who need to repent of that sin and turn to the lord they must flee to the lord it's not an easy task it's not a task that the world accepts with open arms But as Jeremiah went about in Jerusalem proclaiming God's word to the people, false prophets rose up. They always rise up to contradict the words that are coming from the Lord, to muddy the waters. Jeremiah went throughout Jerusalem proclaiming the temple is going to be destroyed. You guys are going to go into exile only to be upended by false prophets who came around like the false prophets of today saying, no, listen guys, God is not like that. God would never destroy the temple. God would never send you into exile. God is love. God is peace. Don't listen to that fear-monger Jeremiah. Jeremiah's message was unpopular. It cut against the grain of a false believer's passions. And so Jeremiah was ignored. Jeremiah was attacked. And at certain points it got so bad that Jeremiah wanted to quit and even worse. I want you to listen to the words of a true prophet's dejection as he ministers to the people in the name of the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah here in chapter 20 of Jeremiah's prophecy. And here, he, try to get a sense of his emotional state. He said, I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction! For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Can you feel Jeremiah there? And the difficulty of the task, the weight of the task? Do you see the turmoil and the internal distress of a true prophet? Jeremiah understood Every time the Lord sends me with a message to the people, it is a message of violence and destruction and repentance. And the result of that message is the hatred of even those who were once my closest friends. But what's worse, if I remain silent, it's like a fire rages in my bones and I can't keep it in and I've got to speak it, which only leads to more hatred from more people. Oh, why did I even have to be born, said Jeremiah. If you compare Jeremiah's experience to the many self-styled prophets of our own day, there seems to be a rather large disparity, doesn't there? And while certain worldly prophets continue to get richer and richer off the backs of people who buy into their false messages, I have noted with much anguish the rise in pastoral suicides over the last decade as the real prophets of God trying to maintain their preaching ministries succumb to the spirit of Jeremiah. You can look it up online. It's, a, it's become, an, uh, it's become a, a rather large subject. I would venture to say that Jeremiah's outpouring of grief might capture their struggles well. It's actually quite telling because it's not just Jeremiah. When you study the lives of the other prophets as well, so many of them in the heat of their prophetic ministries found the duty so difficult that they asked the Lord to end their lives. Moses, Moses. Moses is one of the most amazing figures in in the Bible. I love reading about Moses. He, man, that guy's amazing. But Moses, when he was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, listened to their incessant complaints. Moses, who spoke God's word to them, who led them in God's truth, had to deal with rabble, the text tells us, among the people who had strong cravings for meat. They wanted their passions filled, and they wanted Moses to do it right then and right there. And they went around turning people against Moses because they wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. And Moses turned to the Lord, saying this in Numbers 11. Where am I going to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will not treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. That's Moses. But it's not just Moses either. You remember Elijah? Elijah had just called upon the people of Israel to turn and to repent after, call, after the Lord answered his prayer in fire, revealing that the Lord is the Lord, the Lord is God, and not Baal. Baal is a powerless God. And in turn, Elijah was met by the threatenings of Queen Jezebel. And so Elijah fled to the desert, and in turmoil over the entire situation... This prophet of God calling upon the people to repent prayed this to the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 19. It is enough. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And Jonah While his situation is a little bit different, he preached to the people of Nineveh and they repented, but Jonah was so angry by his prophetic ministry, by the success of his prophetic ministry, that he also cried out in Jonah chapter 4, verse 3 Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, contrast that with the freewheeling, jet setting, trend setting lives of the modern day false prophet the life and ministry of the true prophet far from being ear tickling smooth talking and popular is quite difficult as you can see from scripture right and it drove many of the prophets to whom had been given the task to despair of their very own lives The weight of the calling, the burden of the calling, the responses of people around them to the calling, and the false prophets who consistently rise up to contradict them as they call on people to enter by the narrow gate and to walk on the narrow road all make the task very difficult. And so Jesus declares, beware of the false prophet. So then how do we know? I think we grasp the importance of bewaring a false prophet but how do we know who is a false prophet how can we tell who the ravenous wolves hiding in sheep's clothing actually are because the fact is they do hide every visible body has the enemies of the agent participating in the church the enemy sends his people in there to sow division to sow discord and they hide False prophets, they come in among God's people and they appear to be one thing. Sheep, innocent, nice, kind. So much so that they cause us to kind of like them. And so we keep our mouths shut about them when we see them doing things that we're like, hmm, that's not right. Maybe they shouldn't be saying stuff like that. But, I mean, we're Canadians. We don't want to sound mean. And so we keep our mouths shut. However, Jesus said here that while they may look innocent, they are anything but innocent they may come to you as one of you but jesus said they are really seeking to devour you they are ravenous you see that word in there they are ravenous that word there means greedy voracious ravaging and dangerous they distort god's word because they are greedy for gain and power and self-advantage and know this everyone bar none all who advocate for the wide road, who tell you the gate is wide, who tell you the path is wide, who say you can have your sin and God too, are false prophets, ravenous wolves, and they are leading you astray. But how can we tell? Is there any sort of biblical standard by which to judge a true and a false prophet? Jesus said in our text, he said, you will recognize them by their fruits. You see that? You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Basically, that section boils down to this. You will recognize them by their fruit. So are there any biblical definitions of what are standards by which to judge? What's good fruit and what's bad fruit? Yes. There is a definite scriptural standard, and I'm going to help us understand three, the three things we need to look for if we're going to determine whether a prophet is true or whether a prophet is false. The first, the first is a prophet must be doctrinally accurate. A prophet must be doctrinally accurate. Anybody that calls themselves a prophet and leads people into deception is a false prophet, someone you must beware of. And in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses made this very clear that this is a serious issue, and he installed a penalty for the prophet who leads people from truth into error. And in the Old Testament, uh, under the Old Covenant, that penalty was death. Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God. So you see, the prophet comes in, does something amazing, and then the doctrinal part hits. And what's the doctrinal part? Let us go after other gods. Right? A prophet must come to you, not calling you away in any way, shape, or form from the Lord of Scripture, but always pushing you to him. Pointing you to him, pointing you to obedience to his word, clarifying his word to you so that you know exactly what you are called to do as a follower of the Lord. So that's number one. They must be doctrinally accurate. The second qualification or the second uh, standard is this: they must have moral integrity. Moral integrity. The Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, saying this, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Remember that line, destructive heresies. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and listen, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And listen to this. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The false prophet is easily identifiable by their lifestyle. And did you note the two things that were brought up in this text? It's the same two things that always seem to reveal a false prophet. One, sensuality. Sexual sin, some falling into that realm. And the second, greed, greed, sensuality and greed. The third is, um, this one doesn't apply anymore, but there are people who still claim to be this type of prophet, so um, the Old Testament does give us a, uh, a standard if they decide you're gonna, they're going to assume this role, A prophet who is a foreteller or a foreteller, someone who claims to be able to give a vision or to speak the future, must demonstrate perfect predictive accuracy. Perfect predictive accuracy. Deuteronomy 18 said, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. When the Lord spoke through a prophet, the words of the Lord through that prophet always came to pass. And so if somebody took on themselves the mantle of predictive prophet and went and said something and it didn't come to pass, it meant the Lord had not spoken to them. So how can we know if a prophet is really, this type of prophet is really speaking for the Lord? Their words must come to pass every single time. If they don't, that makes the Lord that they claim to serve a liar. There is no one who can make no one who can do this any longer. There are none who can claim to speak for the Lord and make predictions who are, that we are to completely follow. There is no one who receives such revelations from the Lord any longer. There is no one who can say, thus says the Lord, unless they are pointing at the words of God in Scripture and they say, thus says the Lord, and they simply read what's here. Right? We have the Word of God. We have Scripture. And now the prophet's task is to call people to obedience to God's word. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Doctrinal accuracy, um, moral integrity, perfect predictive accuracy. And so therefore, test the fruit of the prophets. Test the words and the lives of those who claim to possess the spirit of God. You will recognize them by their fruit. You will know them by their deeds. The Apostle Peter also warned against those who lack moral integrity. That's what we said, right? The the moral integrity. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, um, when we talked about the sensuality and the greed, Peter went on in that chapter and spent the rest of that chapter informing us of the fruits and the future of false prophets, saying this, when we see the fruits of immorality, greed exploitation sensuality false words and false teaching you can be confident that this person is a false prophet devoid of the spirit no matter what they claim see the holy spirit works in a believer to bring about ever increasing christ likeness ever increasing reflection of and obedience to jesus and the holy spirit gifts his people the church for for that end for that goal And so some are called to be prophets. Some are called to take on the role of clearly, powerfully, and effectively calling people to God's Word, to heed God's Word, to obey God's Word, to know God's Word, to call people to the obedience of faith. The true prophet will exhibit certain foundational characteristics as set forward in Scripture. Those who hold the spiritual gift of prophecy will be doctrinally orthodox, meaning they'll be biblically faithful, holding to right doctrine, laboring to properly interpret Scripture. They will also be committed to living out lives of moral integrity and speaking the truth of God accurately. And this is a tremendously important gift in the life of the church. It is so important that Satan seeks to counterfeit it at every turn. False prophets are everywhere. False prophets are consistently rising up among God's people, attempting to lead God's people away from God's word, away from the acceptable truth of God, away from true and acceptable worship. This is devastating, isn't it? It is important that we get this right. It is important that we understand the prophet and their role accurately, and it is important that we test the doctrine, the life, and the integrity of those prophets. In looking at this one gift, we can assess clearly the devastation that has been wrought in the church, that have been wrought, that has been wrought in different ministries throughout the history of uh, the church, as people claim to represent the Holy Spirit as prophets, but instead lead people away from the Word of God and destroy the ministries that they came to. These are false prophets. These are what Jesus calls ravenous wolves, bad trees, diseased trees, whose future is to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And Peter, back in Second Peter chapter 2, remember I said, remember the word destructive heresies, Peter revealed that the false prophets among us, the false prophets that claim to be of us, are secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Did you hear that, right? Back in Second Peter. And the word destructive here means the experience of ruin and annihilation. That's the sense of that word destructive. The teachings of false prophets bring ruin and annihilation to the places that they go as people listen to them. Because their words lead many to deny Jesus, to reject the master who bought them. Their words lead many into sensuality and disobedience. And according to Peter, it is because of them that the truth of God will be blasphemed in, in a ministry. Them. It's the false teachers who are responsible. And it is also those who didn't test that false teacher who are responsible. And the devastation come, can come uh, in no, a number of ways. It can come through one person who leads a whole group of people astray, or it could come uh, by a thousand cuts. I'll give you an example of both. The devastation can come through one person claiming to be a prophet, um, and there's a good example of that in someone named Joseph Smith. You ever heard of Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith is the founder of the Mormon group. In the 19th century, Joseph Smith claimed to speak for the Lord, and he ended up leading a tremendous number of people, both inside the Church of God and outside the Church of God, from the truth of God. He alleged to have received new revelation from God in the form of a set of heavenly tablets that came down from heaven. And there was a language on them called New Egyptian and he couldn't read that language and so the Lord sent down a set of heavenly spectacles so that he could put them on and read the language. And when he got the spectacles, he wrote down what, he, what, the, what was in this book, and this revelation we know now, this revelation we know today as the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, uh, the claims are that God was once a good Mormon man, a good human being on another planet at some point in the past, and that all good Mormon men can aspire to being God of their own planet someday. While women, you are blessed with eternal pregnancy. You keep creating spirit babies that will one day take on physical form at some point in the future. That's the height for you if you're a Mormon woman. And so when humanity fell, God enacted a plan. And He he looked for information as to what, what would be the best plan to save fallen humanity. And so Jesus came in, and Jesus kind of gave his plan. He gave his plan of, to save humanity through his death. And then Lucifer, who is the half-brother of Jesus in this scheme, revealed another plan, an alternative plan, but that plan was more of a self-seeking, self-serving plan. And so God chose Jesus' plan. And in response, Lucifer launched a war against God in response. He couldn't believe that God had chosen Jesus' plan over Lucifer's plan. And so in the war, there were a number of people who chose sides. And there were a number of people who didn't choose a side. And so the ones who chose to fight on Jesus' side, they come to earth as good Mormon men and women. While those who remain neutral, who waited to see how the battle played out, and this is simple history from Mormonism. This has changed. They've they've obviously changed this now. It was taught by Joseph Smith. It was taught by Brigham Young, the two initial founders of the Mormon church. Those who remained neutral to see how the battle played out came to earth with dark skin. And Smith, in his own day, was widely regarded as a gold-digging con artist. But he claimed to be a prophet. And even though he spoke some of the most bizarre unbiblical doctrines his prophetic claims actually sparked one of the largest sects in history one prophet or one person claiming to be a prophet leading that many people astray and there are others i just chose him But if such outlandish and unhistorical claims can launch such a humongous movement, imagine just how much headwaste the smaller, more incremental attempts of false prophets within the church can be. You see the ruin that has been brought on the the church by false prophets so many denominations it's like this cycle that keeps going over and over and over people start with a, a commitment to god a commitment to his word and they're on fire for the lord and they're out there ministering and evangelizing until some false prophets begin to rise up in their midst and they begin making concessions and all of a sudden that ministry falls and becomes another liberal ministry so many denominations, associations, universities, and movements in the Christian church begin with a full-fledged commitment to God's word. And over time, the false prophets rise up among them and they say, we should, we should allow more people in. We should, have, we should make concessions theologically. We should, you know, let, let... Why do we have to be so strict? Why do we have to live... That guy's not nice. That prophetic voice over there is not a nice guy. And so, eventually, the foot is in the door. And when the foot is in the door... Eventually the door opens and eventually full-scale apostasy takes place. It's occurred over and over and over again. For example, did you know that the United Church of Canada, if you know the United Church of Canada now, you know what it is. United Church of Canada was once the powerful gospel preaching movement in this country. And now, there are atheists in their pulpits who claim no commitment to scripture over any other religious book how did we get there how did that happen did you know that in the united states fuller theological seminary was once a bastion of biblical thought training men to go and in the word of god and sending them out to preach the gospel into the world in the world but now it is one of the most liberal universities in america union theological seminary a seminary whose tagline is this, real people. Oh, uh, we seek to train real people for real pastoral ministry in real churches across the world. They wrote to a pastor, his name is Dr. Vadi Bakum, great guy, when one, he, one of our missionaries, Carlos Paul, is working with Vadi Bakum in, where is it, Zambia? Zambia? Somewhere in Africa. And Vadi wrote an article about unions drift into liberalism, and they responded to him by saying this. They wrote this to Dr. Bakum. While divinely inspired, we deny that the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both, or a combination of, God's truth and human sin and Prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages in the Bible are God's. Now, did you catch that? According to Union Seminary, the Bible is not without error. The Bible is not sufficient. It was written by men and therefore reflects a combination of truth and error. And therefore, according to them, what we need is both biblical scholarship and the current culture's progressive values to help us know which messages in the Bible are from God and which ones are not. How did we get there? cultural values, cultural values never dictate how scripture ought to be interpreted. Cultural values never dictate how we read God's truth. God's truth is objective. It is always true no matter what. It stands above us. We submit to its authority. We do not stand above it, striking out or reinterpreting the things that we don't like through the lens of the current cultural values. But this list could go on and on. And every time... Every time, it's the same four pillars that the mo- that the movement that held the movement together at the start that are always chipped away at and eventually knocked down, which caused the entire house to fall. And I learned these four pillars from Dr. John MacArthur, and he set them out for us. These are the four pillars that we must always be watchful of, always be on guard. The first of the pillars is the inerrancy, infallibility, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. You can just write the authority of Scripture if you're taking notes. The authority of Scripture. They always will attack. Is this really what God's Word teaches? Let's go back and redefine the Greek words. Or let's go back and we'll do this. Let's have a a conversation about this. Let's deconstruct this. You'll always hear those words. Right? Right? The second is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. The Substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. When I say that, I mean the Bible teaches that Jesus died in your place as an acceptable substitute, bearing the wrath of the Father in your place for your sin. If you come to Jesus by grace, through faith, then your sin, the punishment that will rightly, should, or ought to rightly fall upon you, is diverted, and the Father punishes your sin in the person of Jesus Christ, who bears that sin in your place. But some people don't like that idea. How could God pour out wrath? And so it's another pillar that is being uh, attacked. The third is the reading of Genesis 1 and 2, and the creation account as factual history. Now, I know that people are going to struggle with the reading of Genesis 1, but there are people who specifically try to get us to rethink Genesis 1 and 2 so that they can say, well, if, if this is poetic, then how do we know that the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels happened? And so they start to cast doubt on God's Word as a whole. I always come back to this. Genesis 1. Could God have created the world in exactly the way that He's written it in Genesis one? Of course. So why would God write that He did it that way and then do it some other way? Doesn't make sense to me, right? I just can't you know? But culture's making headroads and we're starting to we're starting to see some redefinitions of these subjects. The fourth one is the role of women in the church. The role of women in the church. Culture is uh, trying to, you know, certain, certain aspects of culture are seeking to elevate women above men. We are equal. Men and women are equal. But God has ordained roles in home and in church. And so a lot of people define equality as uh, anything you can do, I can do. But that's not how God defines quali- uh, uh, equality. God defines it as you are both worth the same in my eyes. You are both equally loved in my eyes, whether you are man or woman. So those are the four pillars. The authority of Scripture, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the reading of Genesis 1, and the role of women in the church. You will see these four things consistently chipped away at. And as they get one, it's easier for the other ones to fall. And when they fall, it moves from the United Church being the bastion of gospel proclamation in our country to being uh, a, a, a denomination with atheists in the pulpit. These are the four pillars that begin movements and the four pillars that are attacked bit by bit in any movement that ascribes to them. False prophets will consistently arise and keep trying to chip at those exact things to trying to lead people away from God in, in away from the direction of God's word. And so, we must beware of the prophets who come to us in sheep's clothing, but who are inwardly ravenous wolves. The Apostle Paul, after planting and ministering to the church at Ephesus as he was about to leave Ephesus, warned the elders of the church about this very thing, saying in Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Did you see what Paul was saying here? False prophets arise from within our midst speaking what? Twisted things. The word here means distorted or deformed things. They will rise up and speak perversions of the truth that lead people to depart from the truth of God's Word, from the accepted biblical standard. They will rise up and make the straight paths of God's Word crooked and teach perversions that lead people astray and therefore be alert. Knowing this, Paul labored day and night, the text tells us, admonishing the people with tears. This is how he, he stayed alert, by keeping watch day and night and admonishing with tears. Walk the narrow path because wolves are coming. They will rise up. They will come in among you. They will not spare you. In other words, they will eat you alive if they can. Wolves, as per the words of Jesus in our text, are the false prophets. Those who deface and deform and distort the Word of God while claiming to lead people in the Word of God. And so therefore, you must always be alert. You must always test, always validate those who claim to speak God's Word to you. How strict was the Lord with false prophets? Well, in Israel, He called the community to stone them to death. You see that ought to help us recognize just how important this subject is. I don't think we fully at times grasp the danger of the false prophet among God's people. I don't think we fully grasp how alert we ought to be. I don't think we recognize that we cannot overestimate the false prophet's ability to ransack and pillage the unalert church. This is truly a matter of life and death for a church, a denomination, and a ministry, as we have seen over and over and over again. And so Jude, Jude will call false prophets unreasoning animals in Jude chapter 10, or Jude 10 to 13. Says they're unreasoning animals walking in the way of Cain, abandoning themselves for the sake of gain, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, casting up the foam of their own shame. False prophets are grumblers, malcontents, loud mouth boasters. Jude was not a Canadian. He was not very polite in his assessment of these false prophets, was he? Those who set themselves up as leaders and teachers of God's word but who are not deserve nothing less the Lord takes his worship very seriously and those who set themselves up as leaders of the people and lead those people wrongly the Lord put them to death in our, in our day no hold on I'm not advocating violent action against anybody, just so you know, right? We are merely displaying the perils of those who lead God's people falsely. You are not called to any such response to the false prophet. In fact, you are called to alertness, admonition, and sounding the alarm. That is your task. Are you getting the picture of the gravity that we, we must take in this situation? We have had self-proclaimed prophets claim such outlandish things. We've had Mr. Benny Hinn claim that there are nine members of the Trinity. We've had him claim that Jesus took on the nature of Satan at the cross. We've had one Miss Joyce Meyer claim to receive revelations from God that even the Bible can't explain. That's ludicrous, by the way. That repentance is not a necessary component of the Christian life. That one Andy Stanley said we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And that women should be elders and preachers. All of these are patently untrue, but I don't think these are where we're struggling. Right? I don't think this is the big issue of the day. I think m- most Christians who are reading their Bibles now are not being suckered in by these statements. But there is something that's rising up right now that needs to be addressed and it's making its way like poison throughout the American church and when it comes to the American church, it will come to ours. And that is something called uh, critical race theory. Have you ever heard this phrase, critical race theory? I didn't say it in the nine o'clock and somebody said, you should say the name, critical race theory. Uh, It's the idea that um, we start creating walls and divisions and barriers among one another based on our skin color. I just was reading through one of my favorite news uh, what do you call it, news outlets today. Uh, it's called uh, "Not the Bee." You guys ever heard of the Babylon Bee? Yeah, Babylon Bee. Not the Bee is The Babylon bee is a satire site, but not the bee is um, news that sounds so satirical. It ought not to be true, but it is. right? So it's kind of a similar idea and so in they they put a somebody took a picture of uh, their walk through target walking through the store target and there is a wildly popular devotional that's being sold in target and people are buying it and they're using it as their devotional reading and the pig, the picture that was sent shows one of the devotionals in there and the first line is this and if you read the whole chapter this means exactly what it says The first line of this popular devotion is this, Dear God, please help me to hate white people. Dear God, please help me to hate white people. See, this is the issue that is going through the American church. The idea that there are certain skin colors that are lesser in the sight of God I like the issue of skin color and ethnicity is raising is being raised as a barrier between God's people so that they don't worship together anymore but instead if you have this color skin you worship over here with this group and if you have this color skin you worship with this group and you have this color skin you worship with this group I don't know about you but when I read God's word I see that Jesus broke down dividing walls of hostility. I see that Jesus is bringing together for himself a group of worshipers from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. I see that when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church in Acts chapter 2, that there are a number of ethnic groups there who all hear the gospel and a number of them get saved. And the Lord brings people together because skin color is not the issue. We are called to worship together regardless. And this idea that it's okay to say, help me to hate white people or fill in the blank, help me to hate whatever group of people is anti-gospel. This is not Babel. This is Pentecost. Right? This is not scattering. This is the power of the gospel bringing us together to worship. The Holy Spirit descended upon all ethnic groups and all skin colors when the church started and all of them came together and praised God together. That's the height. That's the aim. That's the goal. So if you start hearing little snippets of this because there are pastors out there who were once supremely great preachers who are being infected by this poison. If you hear this type of stuff, this is false teaching. It is anti-gospel. No one is better or worse than anyone else because of your skin color. Right? In Christ, we are all equal. So just be alert. Be aware. This is the next wave of false teaching that is going to try and make its way into God's people. It's another way the enemy is going to seek to divide. And if he can divide us, he'll conquer. Don't let him divide. Therefore, in closing, Beware of false prophets. This is a serious, serious issue. Beware of false prophets and know that every tree that does not bear good fruit, every false prophet that does not repent or turn from their wicked sin along with all who follow them will walk the broad road to their eternal destruction. And Matthew 7, 19 says they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So you... Beware of false prophets. Test everyone who sets themselves up as a teacher over you. Test my doctrine. Test my words. Test my life. Do not listen to one word I say to you if you think I'm a false prophet. Because claiming to speak on behalf of the Lord is a very serious task. And Jesus ends this section Section or the segment by stating you will recognize them by their fruits. So test their fruits. Be alert. Beware. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we love you and we thank you most of all this morning for our salvation, for our co- our faith in in Christ, for believing in Him and for the grace that you dispense upon us by faith in Him. And we also praise you for, the, uh, for your word given to us as the foundation upon which we can build our lives. We thank you that in your word you have revealed to us the truth. We thank you that it does not change. We thank you that you do not change. We thank you that it, as culture continually shifts and as culture continually changes and it keeps going in every which direction, that we who love you can run back to your word and know exactly what you think. We can know exactly what you teach. And Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit living in us, that you would bring in, you would raise in us an alertness to anything, to anyone who would take us away from your word, who would lead us in a direction that opposes your word. Lord, please help us to always have our eyes fixed in your direction. Help us to beware, help us to be alert, help us to see clearly. You are so good to us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the Spirit in us who will help us. In Jesus' name, amen.